Hello, folks. Thanks for being a part of this from wherever you may be safely gathered. I'm glad you're a part of this worship service. In reference to that video, I was seven years old when I responded to the invitation of grace, and I trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and I'm proud to tell you that Jesus Christ is my King. I'm not so proud to tell you, however, that I wish I could say that following Jesus Christ has been a perfect experience on my part. And I know, that's, I know that when people sometimes say that from the stage, it's like, oh, aren't they being humble? I'm not being humble. I'm being honest. I followed a perfect Savior. He has not had a very perfect follower in me. There have been places in my life where I did not give Jesus the worth that he deserved as I place that worth on other things, whether they were relationships or ambitions or recreation or habits or even ministry. And so I don't consider myself a perfect follower, even though I've been a part of the perfect grace of God as well. We are in this series of citizen. The idea that even though we may live in this world, that if we have been born again, followers of Jesus Christ, that we have automatically been transferred into a different kingdom, a kingdom not of this earth, an eternal kingdom, and that we live out the reality of that kingdom in our life in a way that evidences the fact of who our king is, because indeed, a kingdom presumes that there's a king, and that our lives therefore also become these living invitations for people to also be invited into the kingdom of Christ through the witness of our lives as well. So last week, we talked about Jesus Christ as the goal. We talked about this good news of who Christ is and what Christ has done. Today, we're going to talk about worship. And there's a lot of confusion about worship, especially in a couple of areas. For, for instance, for many people, worship is restricted to a place, a place. I know that right now, because of COVID, a lot of gyms have closed down or they're opening up in some different ways. And so the idea that we may have is, well, because the gyms are closed down and I've got a membership and I can't worship at the gym, I'm just not going to worship any place because I only worship at the gym. Of course, that's ridiculous, especially when the YMCA and, and gyms like that, they've actually created opportunities outside for people to worship. The truth about it is, we can work out any place. We can work out at home. We can work out on the greenway. We can work out any place because exercising is not something that's restricted to one particular location. Worship is the same way. We're not restricted in how and where we worship. Is that what Jesus said in John chapter 4? He says location is not going to be the factor. The attitude of the heart is what God is really looking for. This God who wants to be worshiped in spirit and in truth, not just in one location. Another confusion we have is that worship is a program, something we go to, which makes us kind of more spectators and observers rather than participants, even to the way that we identify the measurements of success of the program or the service that we go to. Sometimes we ask the question, how many people came to worship? We can count that. We can count the number of heads that are in the seats and identify how many people came or how many people checked in through the online to identify themselves as part of the worship experience. But what we can't count is how many people worshiped. We don't know the answer to that. Only God does. One of the questions that usually may uh, take place at the end of a worship service as you're talking to somebody on the way home, whether a spouse or a friend or a relative, a parent, is the question is, so what did you think of the worship today? What did you think? Kind of puts us in the position of being a critic of that program. And that's part of the problem that we have in the confusion, which requires some clarity of what worship is. Because the truth about it is, is when we look at the clarity, worship is a priority. 
Every single human being, whether you are a follower of Jesus Christ or not, whatever religion you are a part of or not, every human being was created with the ability to worship, to be able to place significant worth or value in something. Everybody worships. We just get to choose what we worship. I love the quote that Tim Keller said, what you think about in your private time, that is what you worship. Every single one of us chooses where we place that supreme value and worth. And so that's it. It's a priority that we were all made for and designed for. But ultimately, worship is about a person. It's about assigning supreme value and worth to God as our king. Unfortunately, maybe we have to confess that sometimes God does not get the worth from us that he Deserves, And so the question is not so much, so what did you think of worship today that we're asking somebody else? It's a question we need to ask God. God, what did you think of my worship today? What did you think of my worship today? And so therefore, here's the thing. If what we worship, if the things we worship is what we place great worth upon, then our worship requires a worth shift. True worship requires worth shift, making sure that God receives the worth and the worthy devotion and affection that he's worthy of. So we're going to work from a definition today. I got this inspired by gotquestions.org. You can go online and see that. Inspired by that. And so here's the definition, that the rhythm of true worship, the rhythm of true worship is constant, reverent response to the God of Scripture expressed in prayer, in song, in service, in giving, and in living. I know it's a mouthful, but you can't skimp on the definition when it comes to worship. That the rhythm of true worship, the rhythm of how we express the worth to God is constant, reverent response to the God of Scripture that's expressed in prayer, in song, in service, in giving, and in living. That particular definition kind of speaks about both the posture of prayer as well as the perspective of prayer that can impact our life in such a way in which we live and move and have our being in that person of great worth and impacts our life to be a blessing to those that are around us. So today we're going to take a look at the dimensions of worship. We're going to take a look at the vertical dimension of worship, the internal dimension, as well as the external dimension and I want to help us to know how we can know whether or not we're doing it well, how, how to know that we're giving God what he deserves. And we're going to do that by taking a look at the life of an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah. He lived in the latter half of the 8th century B.C. In Jerusalem, he spoke and prophesied to Judah, to Israel, and to other nations. And although his worship experience is real unique, not ever really repeated, there are some principles that we see there that we can also apply to our life to give us an idea of how well we are expressing worth that God deserves. So before we do that, take a look at this passage. May I pray for us, just briefly. Got to get this right. So, Heavenly Father, we pray and ask that, God, you would open our eyes to see the truth of who you are and that you would encounter us in this place that transforms our worth of anything else and transfers that to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
If you are able, in response and reverence and respect to the reading of God's word, may I ask you to stand wherever you may be. We take a look at this passage from Isaiah chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who should I send? Who will go for us? I said, here I am, send me. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. Let's take a look at this first dimension of the rhythm of true worship being the vertical dimension. Uh, Dealing with actually our attention. God is much more concerned with our attention than our attendance. As a matter of fact, John Mark Comer in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, he said this, attention is the beginning of devotion. Worship and joy start with the capacity to turn your mind's attention toward the God who is always with us in the now. For Isaiah, the king Uzziah had died. He was a good king up until the last part of his reign, but he died. And usually when a king dies, there comes this concern and nervousness about the transition of power. But it's into this particular context that Isaiah has this supernatural opportunity. He didn't work for it. He didn't earn it. But he has this opportunity of being able to be encountered by God in a powerful way, a supernatural way. And so when you take a look at the scene, especially as we're supposed to be paying attention to the nature, you can be kind of uh, distracted or, or mesmerized by the elements. We can be distracted by such things as the train of the robe of, of God that, that fills the temple, the smoke and the sound and the thunder that shook the doorpost and the thresholds, kind of like when I'm in a movie theater, like an IMAX movie theater with Dolby digital surround sound. I like immersive experiences. I want to be able to feel my bones kind of shaking because of the sound that's in that place. We can be kind of mesmerized by that. But may I invite you to pay attention to something even more important, and that is that Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and seated on a throne. Seated on a throne. That is the seat of supreme honor and power and authority. That even though crazy things might have been happening in the nation of Israel and Judah at that particular point, yet God was still firmly on his throne in charge of everything. Can I just say this to you and me? That even though we've got all kinds of chaos around us with COVID and educational learning and relational dysfunctions and financial woes, here's the truth. God is still on his throne. 
He's still in charge. He is still ruling without any fret, without any anxiety on his part. And that can give us comfort of knowing that in spite of the chaos that might be around us and the chaos that might be in us, that God is still reigning. Yahweh is still on the throne. And the angels were also, they were saying to one another, holy, holy, holy. Uh, Tony Evans basically said that that's kind of like holiness to the third power, this three-peat of the holiness that identifies God as transcendent, utterly different than anything in creation. He is free from any of the failings or the sin or the wickedness or the limitations of humanity. Everything about his nature flows out of this otherness, this supernatural, perfect righteousness and holiness and power that is a nature of God. We need other descriptions sometimes to understand who it is that we're dealing with that made this impression upon Isaiah. As a matter of fact, I want to pick up where Jason left off last week from Colossians chapter 1. He ended with verse 14. I want to pick up with verse 15 and offer a description of Jesus Christ that I believe coincides with what Isaiah is taking a look at. Let's take a look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Speaking of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to preach on it. I'm just going to read it to you. You see it for yourself. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, one who has supreme rank over all creation. Everything was created by him, Christ, in heaven and on the earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is before all things. By him, all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ, and through Christ to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Folks, you and I think that Jesus Christ showed up on the radar in Bethlehem to the Virgin Mary. He was born, lived, he died, and rose again from the dead. The scripture, however, tells us that Jesus Christ, as one of the persons of the triune God, he is eternal. And there are many places in the Old Testament where Jesus actually shows up in this pre-incarnate form. Is it possible, therefore, that what Isaiah was seeing was the actual visible manifestation of God that is Christ? More than any other prophet, Isaiah, one-third of his book talks about Jesus, the Messiah, both his first and his second coming, defining Jesus with such words as judge or Emmanuel or the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Over and over again, Isaiah has these amazing pictures. Folks, it's important that if we're going to pay attention, if our vertical dimension is to be secure so that worship is on the basis of what is true about God. We don't worship God on the basis of what we see, but on the basis of what he has revealed. Then it's important that we get that right. A.W. Tozer said, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I would say it's the most important thing for us because if we don't have the proper truth of God as he has revealed himself, true worship is impossible. 
And that's why scripture helps us to nail down the clarity of his identity so that we can worship properly. And it impacts our life very deeply, as it did Isaiah, which brings us to the second dimension, and that is the internal. That God addresses our affections, or might I say sometimes, he addresses the infections of our affections is what happened with Isaiah. What I find interesting is that God didn't say a word. God hadn't said anything to Isaiah or about Isaiah's spiritual condition. And yet, with just the presence of God in the room, Isaiah basically says in, in, in Jewish, oi, which is, a, which is an expression of lamentation, of grief, of woe. Oi, I am ruined. I am undone. I am to the end of myself. I am on the verge of, of perishing. That this expression of the presence of God has exposed this destitute condition of my heart. And he is beside himself with grief and with dread. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people. Something about the presence of God that exposes the darkness in our own life. Some of you may not remember this, but because we take pictures now with our, with our smartphones, but back in the day when dinosaurs roamed the earth, when you had to take a picture, you were actually using a camera and you would take the film and send it off to a developer. I had the skill of being able to develop pictures when I was a youth minister. And I would remember when we, uh, you took the film out and you were in a dark room with a particular kind of light that doesn't do damage to the image. And while you're developing the pictures, someone would open the door right? And the light pouring in from that, that, that outer room damages the image, and I got to throw the whole thing away and do the whole thing from scratch, scratch because the light ruins the image. There's a sense to where that light of God exposes the sin and the wickedness, and unless we are aware of his presence, we can't be aware of the infections to our affections. But here's the thing. God doesn't show up to pummel us. God doesn't show up to cause us to stay in prison, to stay under the burden of that weight. He comes to seek our freedom and our liberation simply by just showing up. It's interesting, isn't it, that when we are driving on the road, driving on the road, and there is a, we, we drive past a, a, a highway patrol. We have automatically two reactions to that. When we see a, a highway patrol or a cop driving, two reactions. Number one, we automatically look at our speedometer, right? We look at our speedometer to see if we may be going over the speed limit. And then the next thing we look at is the rear view to see if we have been going over if he's coming after us. This is what I've heard. I've heard that people have that experience. But simply because of the presence, it automatically calls to attention the fact that maybe something may not be right or maybe we didn't do the right thing. Folks, here's the thing. God is not looking to get us. But when he shows up, when we allow his presence to show up, it exposes those places. But God wants to do something about that. So what he does for Isaiah he dispatches these celestial beings with these holy coals from this holy altar and touches it to Isaiah's lips. And the angel, the seraphim, basically says to Isaiah, see, behold, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Your guilt, your perversity, your wickedness, and the punishment you deserve is taken away, and your sin is reconciled. You're cleansed. You're forgiven. Folks, I am pretty sure that for many of us who've come today, we have come into the presence of God 
loaded with the burdens of our own sin. Loaded with the weight of actions or speech or motives that do not reflect the worth of God. And for many of us, the weight of our sin can be so heavy that it makes it difficult to believe that it can actually be resolved. This is one of the things I think may be missing in our personal devotional times as well as our corporate. Listen to me. Every single one of us, every single day, we need to be unburdened from the things we have done that we know violates the rule of God in our life, especially these days with so much stress that sometimes what comes out of us to our loved ones, to our family, to our coworkers, it ain't pretty. And we deal with the guilt of, oh, I can't believe I just said that. Oh, I, I can't believe I just thought that. Oh, I can't believe I just did that. If you're here today, I've got good news for you. Today, can be the day you become unburdened of that guilt. Why? Because God is here, and he is here to set us free through Jesus Christ from that burden. Isaiah gets those coals to his lips. The seraphim reminds him, your guilt. Hear this for you. Hear this for me. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, You've given your life to Jesus. You're trusting him and saving your Lord, but you've not been following the perfect leader perfectly. And you are here today dealing with some particular violation or some misstep or some expression of disobedience. If you are willing to agree with God and confess that sin, automatically, I want you to hear him say this, what he said to Isaiah, your guilt is taken Away. Your sin is atoned for. Whatever the wickedness was, it's been done away with. It's no longer held to your account. Your sin has been atoned. Christ, through his death on the cross, has paid the penalty for that sin so you can be forgiven, so you can be cleansed, so you can be reconciled, so you can be set free. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, I encourage you to accept the presence and the grace of God that will set you free from whatever you have done as you re-devote yourself to him. If you're here today and you've never really entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, I, I, I can't go any further but to say to you, today can be the day that you for the first time really Acknowledge Christ as Lord by in your heart with faith and belief and even through your lips, even with me to say, Jesus, I need your forgiveness. I believe your death and your resurrection can give me life without the fear of judgment. So I claim you as king and I want to follow you as my Lord. Folks, if you've had that kind of response today, whether you've received the forgiveness of God or you've decided to receive Christ for the very first time, I encourage you. For those of you who are, that are Christians, text FORGIVEN. Just to celebrate, we want to celebrate with you that you receive the grace of God and that you are forgiven. And for those of you that may be doing it for the very first time, text NEW CITIZEN. 
new citizen to that number so we can celebrate with you, but also move towards you to help you take those next steps. Which brings us then to the next dimension, and that is the external, the outward. Because true worship really has both an upward expression, but an outward as well. So when God says, who will go from us? Who will we send? Isaiah says, here, but I, I feel like there's something kind of missing, even before that. Do you know what it feels like to be forgiven and unburdened? Because Isaiah never really says anything, but I, 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 between verses 7 and 8, there should be a paragraph or something where Isaiah is responding to the grace. Let me ask you, do, do any of you here know what it feels like to be forgiven? For instance, you're in your car, you've been pulled over by the cop, and he walks over to you, he asks for your driver's license and your registration number, he goes back to his car, and, and, and he's got you. You know that you're speeding. You know it. And when he comes back, he says to you, hey, um, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to give you a ticket. I'm going to give you a warning. Just be careful and slow down. What's your response to that? At least this is what I've heard from other people who've had this particular experience. And the response is gratitude. Thank you, or like, thank you for all that you're doing, officer. Thanks for making us all safe. There's that sense of when you know that there's no longer burden and there's this sense of relief and joy and thanksgiving. The same thing, even more so, when we know that we have been forgiven, Isaiah must have been so free and elated with the fact that that burden God had removed. So of course, <laughs> When God says, who will go for us? Who will we send? Isaiah is probably, please, let me. Because of everything that you've done for me, I want to be available for you. Send me. That when true worship happens, we make our lives available with devotion to the one who gave us brand new life. Our availability to God through which now he can use us he can express his kingdom cause and purpose and power. We say, here I am. What I love about that is that that here I am was unique for, uh, for Isaiah, but it's unique and personal for you, for me. God may not send us to prophesy to Judah or Israel, but the here I am, we're basically saying, God, wherever you want me. And by the way, can I tell you this? That those who can say, here I am, are of any age. Children, children can actually say to God, here I am. This past week, Todd Lesher over our Next Gen Ministry in our staff devotional, he reminded us of the boy Samuel who would grow up to become a prophet at seven years old, that Samuel, in encountering God, said, Lord, here I am, your servant is listening. Children can respond. We want to be a church where children of any age can respond to God with their availability. Teenagers, young adults, married adults, single adults, whatever stage you may be, empty nesters, senior adults, that you can still, in the presence of God, because of what he has done for you, in response to that, you can say, Lord, here I am. Send me. God, use me. Because of what you've done for me, I want to live my life in a way that's an expression and a response of your grace to me. So let's take a look back at that definition as we kind of wrap this up with this rhythm of worship as a lifestyle. That definition we talked about earlier on, the rhythm of true worship is constant, 
reverent response to the God of Scripture expressed through our lips, through prayer, through song, adoration, thanksgiving, but also expressed in our lives through service. The desire we have of being able to bring good to the world and the people that are around us, using our skills, what God has given to us, but it's also in giving. As God has been generous to us, we steward the resources of our time, our talent, and our treasures in a way that we want to also be generous in giving. And Forest Hill Church wants to make sure that we continue to wisely steward your material investments so that we can further the cause of Jesus Christ around the world. For those of you that give, thank you. And we invite you to participate with us, all of you, all of us, in this mission that God's given to us to be generous givers in response to his generous gifts to us. But also living to live our lives in such a way that it makes it very clear what kingdom we belong to and what kingdom that we serve, the king that we serve. So that our lives are expressed in ways that honor God in spirit and in truth, but also to do justice, to love mercy and walk humbly with our God. That's not just a weekly ritual, that's a daily, that's a breathly expression of our life and devotion to God. That's what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse one. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. It's not just what we do in that particular hour on Sundays or whatever. It is how we live our life responding to God. Folks, the worth shift that brings about true worship is going to require time. Our deciding to make sure that we take the time to spend time in the presence of God to get his perspective, it's also going to require truth. Not as we see it, but as it's been revealed to us, which is one of the reasons why you can't worship God properly without Scripture, without making sure that our worship is infused and informed with the truths of God's inspired word, which reveals the nature of God throughout history, that we can respond to God based on who he is and how he is but it also requires transparency and honesty and openness, a humility to allow God to express himself to us and we honestly refer and, and we respond to God by allowing him to know, to know the insides as we express ourselves honestly to him, but then ultimately trust. A trust in him that fuels our obedience, that fuels our devotion always in response to who he is and how he's revealed himself to us. And folks, that is the essence of the worship that is both individual, but then also what we do when we come together, individual instruments of worship and the impact of what happens when we gather together to worship. Rather than being critics or observers or spectators, that we are participants and co-worshippers together to offer the praises to God that he is worthy of, that he deserved. As Peter said in his letter, he says, but you, speaking to the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you all may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I encourage you to take a look and pay attention to the dimensions of worship, the vertical, 
So allow God to deal with the internal aspect of our affections and in response to make ourselves available to God individually, but also corporately. The power of what the world can experience when truly transformed worshipers come together, yes, meeting together at a worship gathering, but living their lives on purpose, on mission, as conduits of the transforming grace of God. May our worth shift produce the kind of worship that expresses the worth of God as the supreme worthy one, even indeed as his glory fills our life and fills the world around us and beyond us for his glory. Let's pray about that. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to have an open heart, an open mind, so that you may express yourself to us and in so doing that, God, we would respond with confession, with adoration, with praise, with thanksgiving, not just in a moment, but with every moment of our life so that you receive the worthy praise and honor that, God, you are due and that we desire for you to have. Set us free and use us as the conduits through which your glory is expressed as we give you our worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.